This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Is landlordism real or do landlords simply get a bad rap? There's a presumption or a narrative that all landlords are bad, that they're money hungry and super cashed up, exploiting their cash castles. But Bromon O'Shea, surely not all landlords are bad. Well, they're a bit like mothers-in-law, aren't they, Rochelle? They're usually portrayed as the villain. And I guess you do hear those horror stories from tenants about unreasonable rent increases and surprise evictions, mould everywhere, no decent heating or cooling. And often the finger is pointed at greedy, unsympathetic landlords. And that's where the term landlordism has come from, which is a relatively new term. And this idea that property investors don't care about the welfare of their tenants, that they only care about their profits. But Bron, what's interesting is, and I'm wondering if this has changed, but previously the majority of landlords were just everyday mum and dad investors. And quite often it was their superannuation, their self-funded superannuation. And we know, we've had calls to this very show multiple times from landlords disputing the fact that they're all bad. And we've heard stories of things like landlords putting in solar and solar panels, which comes at tens of thousands to them in order for their tenants to have reduced bills and we've heard about landlords that maybe let their tenant not pay for a while if they're under financial stress. And that sort of behaviour has led to this other term that's sprung up, ethical landlords. So this is this idea that landlords, you know, some do really work hard to do the right thing by their tenant. So is landlordism real? Is it rife? Or does being a landlord mean more than just a financial investment? Does owning an investment property come with social responsibility? Michelle Hunt with you in Melbourne, Bromon O'Shea with you in ABC Wodonga. I didn't know that there was a theme song for landlords. When we're talking landlordism, there is a tune that goes alongside it. But this idea of a landlord and the narrative, Bron, that they're bad, that they've only got their own interests uh, in the front of centre of their mind. Is that real? And what I find fascinating is that we've heard the term landlordism, but now even the term landlord is outdated. Yes, in fact, we're starting to see words like real estate provider, which I think um, really suggests, doesn't it, that perhaps being a landlord is something more than just owning and and investing in property. Maybe there is that inherent social responsibility to provide and consider safe shelter for somebody else. Does it though? You know, that's the question. And that's Mm. a really uncomfortable and tricky question to have. How many times do you hear the argument, why is it you can have two properties or three properties and I don't have any? That disproportionate, I guess, distribution of wealth. Where does that come from? And how does that fit in our society? On top of it, we are living through a housing crisis at the moment. So what is the social responsibility for landlords or real estate providers? Is there any? I guess fundamentally that's the question we're asking. Yeah, and really interesting um, article that we we both read that had that quote, landlords didn't get into the business to provide a basic human right. They did it to make money and that's our problem right there. 
Ooh, how much social pressure do we put on landlords to fulfil this this kind of obligation to, to care for others and provide affordable shelter for others? Ben Kingsley joins you now. He's the co-author of the Armchair Guide to Property Investing and he's the chair of the Property Investors Council of Australia. Ben, landlords or real estate providers, are they allowed to go into this purely for investment or with it, does it come with great social responsibility? Well, good morning. I, I think uh, the answer there is that they are definitely going into it for a return on investment. Um, I think, uh, you know, in all of the surveys and the research that we've done in this particular area, that would be their primary objective to provide for their family um, and to provide for, obviously, their retirement um, in supplementary to their superannuation. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't thousands or tens of thousands of property investors who are considerate uh, to the needs of their tenants. What do you think? Do do landlords tend to get a bad rap? Are they blamed for things that perhaps they, they aren't responsible for or shouldn't be responsible for? Oh, there's no doubt that the, the narrative at the moment um, is one of negativity towards um, landlords. Um, we're seeing that. Um, coming up, obviously, in social channels and and in terms of some of the political um, narrative that's going on is starting to try and frame uh, property investors as greedy, um, self-centred, self-serving. Uh, and I think that's really disappointing in terms of, um, you know, from a, from a narrative point of view, I think we can have a mature discussion around the fact that, yes, you know, if we didn't have these private landlords um, providing private rental accommodation, uh, we'd be in dire straits in this country mm. in terms of being able to provide appropriate accommodation uh, for you the can, different types. You can see, Ben, though, why that narrative has come about when you see extraordinary cues of people trying to look at a, a rental property with, you know, stories of people offering far above what that the advertised rent has been so that they can guarantee they get that property. Um, people living in really substandard accommodation and feeling as though their landlords don't care and aren't doing anything about it. So I guess it mixed in with it, there has to be some reality um, to have led to that uh, what we're seeing is this growing um, frustration about about that inequity. Yeah, so I suppose we've got to look at also cause and effect as part of that particular story, right? So what we have seen, you know, and what's probably not well documented has been, the, you know, the challenges that obviously private rental providers have had over the course of the last couple of years um, in terms of forced moratoriums, in terms of rents uh, being reduced by as much as 30% in some examples. So I think w without sort of necessarily just totally putting my pro hat on here um, there is a lot of narrative that that is short-term narrative and then you've got to start thinking about the cause and effect now the reason why there is a reduced number of rental properties has really also been for three sort of main reasons the first one is that yes there were some some investors who sold out during the pandemic because ultimately um, they didn't have any renters for their property because what we saw happen from a behavioural point of view is a lot of renters then moved home or moved back overseas uh, to their place, you know, birth of origins of birth. And so that was one of the, you know, the sort of impacts to that. If we actually take a 10-year view of what's actually happened in the property market and, and having a look at where rents are at at the moment, um, if we look at the ABS data, we can see that 
across Australia, the CPI, so inflation has risen, and this is up until a reading of June of last year, has risen by 25.6%. But in terms of, say, Melbourne, for example, rents in Melbourne over that decade have only gone up by 10.5%. Now, in reality, that's, that's a product of supply and demand. And so what we are definitely seeing now is demand is really strong, supply is low, and one of the other critical reasons why we're also seeing supply being reduced is the level of regulation that has come into the space. So through research we did recently in, in partnership with the Property Investment Professionals of Australia, we found that of the 1,600 respondents, 25% of those people said they sold an investment property in the last two years because of increased regulation and compliance um, and losing control of their assets. So you've got to look at these nuances and say to yourself, well, you know, if, if investors don't feel like they're going to be able to get an appropriate return um, for, for their investment... Mm. They Will may it be not worth it? And we're going to pull yep. apart those changes to, to renters and to the rights of renters in just a moment. But so many texts on this already. This says, landlords take all the risk. Too many whinging entitled tenants. I'm a landlord and I didn't put the rent up for seven years and I had great tenants, says Cameron. And another, though, saying, Michelle and Bron, I rent a unit and in two years my rent has increased by $100 a week. I now pay 300 a week out of 450 a week of my old age pension. No repairs or improvements had ever been done. These landlords are disgusting, or the real estate behind them are. I've never had a decent landlord. Thank you for talking about this, says this. But then, another angle again. Maybe these people have worked really, really hard, multiple question marks. Why is the landlord always the villain? The government can build a white elephant, a elephant, but it can't convert vacant buildings for social housing. And I guess just finally, Ben Kingsley, the social responsibility that we're talking about that tenants uh, that sorry that landlords have to provide safe and secure housing to ensure that they don't up the rent that they are fair and reasonable the whole time that they have a social obligation so to speak because they've bought a investment property is that not the government's responsibility as opposed to an individual investor looking at the difference between private and public when it comes to solving our housing crisis that's got to be in the mix, uh, absolutely. I mean, there is no doubt that there is the most needy and vulnerable in our community and social housing, um, public housing needs to needs to be that safety net for them to provide that. Um, in terms of, you know, landlords in general, and if we look at the number of disputes versus the number of, uh, you know, uh, investors in the marketplace, we're talking about um, only around sort of 3% of reported disputes. And if you look at those reported disputes, a lot of those are instigated also by landlords because their tenants aren't paying or, you know, there's been damage. So, again, it's a very small, let's call it 5 maybe 10% of agreements between landlords and uh, tenants aren't going well. Um, but the other 90% are. And just a final point on that, when you start thinking about you know, we've just had the, the, the highest or most steepest increase in interest rates. So if I just give you a simple example for the listeners to comprehend, if you have a $500,000 loan against your investment property, and that's gone up 300 basis points since the RBA increased rates from last year, that's the equivalent of $15,000 in additional cost to hold that property. Now, if we look at the data from CoreLogic, Rents in Melbourne, by example, have gone up around 9.6% 9, 9 over the 12-month period. So that's $45 per month 
or around $540 per annum. Now, of course, there are always going to be examples um, to both ends of the extreme. Mm. But the point I'm making there is um, landlords are, are actually going backwards. Um, for the majority of them have a high level of debt. Now, the social responsibility piece is really important for those landlords who might be in a better financial position where they have very little debt remaining on their investment property and potentially they don't have that drive or that need to continually keep increasing rents to market value. Mm. It, it is unfortunately a case-by-case example there because you just don't know. So my advice to any any sort of uh, relationship between landlords and real estate agents, if a, if a landlord says, I need to increase my rent by $50 a week, or whatever that is, justify that. Say, well, here's roughly what my loan repayments have gone up over that time period, and you're only getting 15 or 20 or 30 or 50% of that. I'm going to carry the other 50%. Yeah. Ben, I, I love that point that you make because um, Rochelle and I were talking about this uh, this situation we have where um, we have real estate agents or property managers in between the landlord and the tenant, and that obviously has its advantages, but it also takes the humanness out of that relationship. Ben, thank you so much for your contribution to this conversation no today. Ben Kingsley is co-author of the Armchair Guide to Property Investing and also the chair of the Property Investors Council of Australia. I wonder, Rishi, if it would be different if we had a more direct relationship between landlord and tenant. I know. And I think about renting in the 90s, Bron, and it was very, very different then. And I don't know about you, but there were multiple homes that I lived in, shared houses, where I would literally drop a bag of cash around to the landlord that lived around the corner. I, had a I did very... exactly the same thing. <laughs> I'd go around every Monday afternoon with my little Ziploc bag of money. <laughs> and hand it to him. <laughs> Not saying that that's right either, but that was a very direct relationship that we've had. But this shift in narrative around the role and the responsibility of those that own investment properties, this text here says, shouldn't social housing be a government issue? Because that's interesting that already someone's labelled it as social housing. Is mm. it actually social housing or is this somebody's potential future of uh, something for them to retire on so that then they're not relying on a government pension and that raises a bigger question too around the pressures that are put on all of us in society this text goes on to say it's becoming more and more expensive to own a property a landlord pays land tax council rates repairs and upkeep don't forget there's also things like even smoke alarms we can't have even tenants change a battery there but then another that says this is such an interesting topic as someone who's rented in bendigo for over 20 years i've moved house more than 10 times and from experience the ratio of good landlords to those that are on the greedy and uncaring side is about 70-30 whether 30% are good and fair and reasonable and 70% aren't. Landlords and their agents often do not look after tenants as well who religiously pay their rent on time and take care of the property. Instead they opt to increase the rent and put off fixing things like appliances or roof leaks. Mm. Yeah I think I've been in my rental life lucky to have great landlords and in fact I remember a property manager saying to my husband and I once um, you're great tenants and we want to look after you and I remember being astonished <laughs> that they would actually come out and, and say that and say we value you because you are good tenants and we and the landlord want to look after you so there you go it's it's not all villainous out there. 
being a landlord or being someone that is a real estate provider, I think is the term, the PC term that lots of people mm. are using now, does that come with great social responsibility? What do you think? Leah Cullinan is a property manager and the former Real Estate Institute of Victoria president. Leah, Ben earlier touched on some of the changes in favour of the renter to ensure that their rights are upheld, that they feel safe and secure in their home. He believes that it's pushed a lot of property owners out of investing into properties. Has it swayed too far now that it's the renter that is completely looked after and the landlord that isn't? Look, it's a combination of quite a few things. Obviously, through COVID, it was a really challenging space for both renters and rental providers. We saw reduced rents. We saw legislation changes. So, yes, the legislation needed to be updated. It was 20 years old. Um, Has it swayed more so to the renter? Yeah, to a degree it has with regards to the way tenancies can be ended. Um, But I think at the end of the day, you know, rental providers, property managers and renters, we all want to make sure the properties are well maintained. And there can be a really great outcome for both parties, can't there? Because I'm sure as a landlord, I'm not one, but I'm sure as a landlord, if you know that you've got people in your property who are looking after it, who care about it, who treat it as their home, that's incredibly valuable. And likewise, if you've got a landlord who takes care of you, you've got a safe place to live and that that can only be a good thing too. So how I guess the question is, how do we get that relationship right when we have these almost opposing um, uh, forces, don't we, of someone's in it to make money and the other person's in it to have a a safe place to live? They don't always go hand in hand. No, no, and it doesn't. And it's a great question, balance. I think we always try and find some level of balance. And, and whether it be, you know, particularly the hot topic at the moment is we've got such a stock shortage, but also such rent increase um, and price movement. So, you know, those conversations that, you know, I know within my own business and I hear across the industry, the rent might need to be increased by, you know, $60, $70 a week, but the owner will say, look, you know, I want to be fair and reasonable, you know, let's approach the tenant and look for a 40 to $50 a week increase. And I know that's still large amounts of of rent increases happening, but it is trying to find a level of balance to say, look, I, I have increased costs, as been outlined, but I also um, need to pass on those costs somewhere, mm. somewhere along. Leah, stay with us. Bernadette's in Bendigo. Hi, Bernadette. Oh, hello, how are you? Well, what did um, you want to add? Um, now, sorry, what was that? I'm just in a tractor. That's Go okay. On. What did you want to say? I wanted to say that my sisters and I have owned some properties and we've always tried to be good landlords. When our tenants have had trouble and they've been good tenants for years, we've um, given them rent relief until they've got back on their feet. During COVID, we dropped our, um, our rent because people were, like, unemployed um, and we've always tried to do good. Like when interest rates were going down, we used to have the real estate agent saying it's time to increase your rate rents. But we'd always say, well, you know, it's actually less expensive now for us. And I think there's a lot of pressure coming to landlords to increase their rent because um, maybe the real estate agents will mm-hmm. get more of money. So do you think so, then that landlords, Bernadette, are getting a bad rap when it's actually the real estate agents that are kind of doing the dirty work? Well, I think they are doing the dirty work. Not, I mean, they need to run their businesses and it's a, it's a big business with all the inspections and photos and it's quite a lot. But um, I think that people just don't uh, know that they can say, no, you don't have to increase your rent. 
if you're happy where you are, um, you don't need to like skint every last dollar. I actually mm. don't think that um, renting is the best investment, but it's a diversified one. You know, I mean, having property, it just it just diversifies your assets really. But, but um, anyway, that's all I'd like to say. That we've always been kind and considerate, but I do think that we have pressure from the agents to always increase mm. the rent. Yep. Yeah, Bernadette, thank you. Thanks for calling us from the tractor too. Yeah, yeah, good. Bye. <laughs> Bernadette in Bendigo, yeah. So definitely approaching um, being a landlord with a social conscience, Rochelle. Bernadette. That's it, ethical landlords as well. Mm. Leah, Leah Callanan is with you as well, property manager and the former Real Estate Institute of Victoria president. Leah, I mean, we just heard from Bernadette there. She owns some property with, you know, with a family member. The idea of who owns a property and the image that we have of an investment property owner, do we have that wrong? Yeah, absolutely. About of all the investment properties um, across Australia, I think it sits at about seventy-five percent own one property, and the average income for for those investors is about eighty thousand dollars per annum. So I think we do have that perception wrong. There's certainly um, you know clients who have multiple properties, and but those big you know people that have you know ten or fifteen or twenty or thirty properties is very very rare nowadays. Leah, one other point that Bernadette raised there was the calls from the the real estate agent, the property manager saying, right, time to put your rent up and her saying, oh, actually, I don't think I will. Uh, What responsibility do real estate agents and property managers need to take in terms of also considering the the safety, the welfare, the well-being of the tenants um, versus always thinking about their, their own profit and the profit of the landlord that they're serving? Well, it's a really tricky, really tricky question, that one, because, you know, to be completely frank, at the end of the day, the affordability from a tenant point of view isn't necessarily the property manager's responsibility. Their role, they're employed by the by the owner of the property. So their role is to provide them with an overview of what's going on in the market and provide them with suggested rent increases. And one of the changes that came in you know, nearly two years ago is that rents can only be increased by every 12 months or reviewed and increased every 12 months rather than they were previously six months. So what that has done is instead of there being perhaps a five or a ten dollar a week rent increase every six months now we're seeing 20 and 30 dollar a week rent increases every 12 months mm. so they can um, you know manage those increased inco- increased costs that the owners are holding um, but it is a really fine line and I know from a you know even from a mental health point of view in the property management world they do struggle when they have to deliver the news to a tenant that either owners moving in or there's going to be a 50 dollar a week rent increase or the owner's going to be selling because they do build relationships with their tenants. Leah, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Not a problem. Leah Callan there. This text here that says, one wonders who forced the landlords to take on high debt. You made your bed, you lie in it rather than forcing it onto the tenant. It's only alternative is to sell and push out the tenant. But then another from Sue, it says, I'm tired of landlords being bagged out. Most of them have chosen to save money to buy a property for their retirement income versus someone who chooses to travel, to entertain or to have fancy cars and live a high life. They're both choices that the individuals make. Most of us can't have both. I chose an investment property or I would choose an investment property every day. It's an interesting conversation, isn't it? Debbie's at Barwon Heads. Hi, Debbie. Hello. How you what going? would you like to add to the conversation? 
Well, I was just explaining to your producer that my son bought a unit in Geelong and it's one of six. So there's two owner occupiers and four people renting. So to try and get anything improved in the general um, units themselves, say like solar power, I joined the body corporate committee because he's at work when the meetings are on, they're on during the week. And I've spoken to them about, could we look at putting solar panels on each of the units that would save your tenants money and it would save my son money. He isn't able to claim Mm. it as any sort of cost, but are they? I mean, I ask that question to people and no one knows, but can't they claim it as a business cost? But and then, well, I guess it's, it's not set up as a business, though, necessarily, is it? And then, I mean, body corporates are something that we haven't even thrown into this conversation as well, especially if you're in an apartment block where you've got a mix, like you say, Debbie, of those that are renting and those that are owners. Mick is in cows. Hi, Mick. Yeah, g'day. Um, yeah, I've been a landlord for a long time now and... Um, I guess I've experienced the lows and lows, but mainly their lows when I'm dealing with tenants. And uh, for one bloke, for instance, uh, I don't know what happened, but he's he must have slammed the door on my front, my front on my unit, so uh, the front door, and he shattered the, the door for him. So of timber that was made of timber, so I had to. Uh, at that time, I couldn't afford a carpenter, so I dribbled six holes um, and put six bolts into the door frame to hold it together. So over the years, I've had to evict people by the sheriff once, and they've been uh, late in their rent six months. I had a small farmlet. I uh, she was a single mother with a couple of children. Um, I let her get away with nearly two thousand dollars in rental arrears. So landlords aren't all bad. In fact, if I had to say it, uh, most tenants that I dealt with, they're they're bad news. Well, we hear that argument, don't we, of bad landlords, Mick, and then we hear of the bad tenants as well. And this is the interesting thing, Bron, is that I wonder if we only hear you know, the, the bad landlords, you know, those that don't do all of the basics, and then we only hear of the bad tenants, the ones that trash the house, and then you can't evict them or whatever it may be. Surely the middle ground is the norm and that, that those two bad eggs are just either side and hopefully there's smaller minority Mm, You'd hope so. I think it's interesting too, I mean, and we've had a few callers who certainly have put their heart into their investment properties in that they don't view it simply as perhaps a sole financial, um, you know, profit-making exercise. They care about the the humanness to it. Um, I wonder though, if if you're not willing to do that and if you're not willing to have compromises and drop the rent in certain circumstances, if you can make, make, um, make it work... Are you better off just going and putting your money in shares? Is property investment, is being a landlord, uh, is part of that really agreeing to to put the human and the heart into it? And if you're not willing to do that, do you go and put your money somewhere else? That's uh, something I'd be interested to hear people's thoughts on too. Mel- Melissa's in Monbolk. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, hi. Um, I own a rental property, which I, I bought as a property to live in and then moved into state, so let it out in case I wanted to move back if the relationship didn't work out. Um, and so I don't really consider it as an investment. It was something that I, I had and I've been lucky enough not to need to sell it in the intervening period. Um, but my real estate agent would regularly sort of say, do you want to increase the rent? And I was in a situation where obviously the extra money would have been good, but I'm like, well, it's a good tenant. 
um, you know, I'll let them, I'll let it stay as it is. And sorry, I'm a little bit nervous. No, don't be nervous. Um, You're making some good points. um, Ten years sort of slipped by uh, without me actually having done a rental increase, which meant the property was then about $200 under the market rental. Um, mm. I, I now have a new new tenant, and they've been in. They had a six month lease, and the six months is now up. And so the the real estate is again saying, um, "Do you want to increase the rent?" So I I'm in that bind of I don't need to increase it. Mm. I mean, I'm getting two hundred dollars more than I was twelve months ago, um, but I don't want to find myself in that same situation where I then need to make a big increase down the track so you know should I just increase it by five dollars every Gosh. year and you know Mel this raises that question of with having a rental investment it does come with some kind of social obligation or at least social yeah. thought that and it sounds like this is something that you thought at great length about and thought about it from a social perspective as opposed to a financial perspective yeah, and that's my bind now is that I feel like I did bad by my previous tenant by not making small increments, you know, not as much as the real estate agent perhaps was suggesting, but just enough because they eventually moved out and would have had a huge jump in rent to wherever, wherever they went, went to because they would be paying market rent, whereas when in my property they were paying mm. well below. And yes. so, yeah, it, it's difficult to, to know what, to do. Oh, Mel, thank you so much for just sharing your thought process there. And a lot goes into it. But this text, Bron, housing must not be used as an investment. Go gamble on the stock market with the other elitists. Mum and dad investors is not a real term, says this text. What do you think? Is landlordism real? Is it rife? And does being a landlord mean more than just a financial investment? Does owning an investment property come with great social responsibility? Thanks. Being a landlord just sounds so funky. (laughs) (laughs) A song I've never heard before and I doubt I'll ever hear it again. This might be the one time only. (laughs) Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Bronwyn O'Shea, as always, joining you from ABC Wodonga. Let's have a chat to Joanne. Joanne, you're in Footscray. Good morning. What do you think? Oh, good morning. Yes, I can't but help think of the conflict between a commodity um, of someone's investment property and we're talking about people's homes, a roof over people's heads and um, I just think while that is the actual matter and the discussion it's just not going to go right for most people. I always thought that to have a home or to uh, have shelter was a human right and it's um, definitely not one that's being followed at the moment. Joanne, that's a, you've beautifully put that. It's the commodification of what we see as a basic human right, isn't it? That's right, yes. And even just listening to this discussion, I, you know, I can feel the tension and, you know, I have children, I have friends who have children who are struggling so much. And yeah. as people know that young children are staying at home in you know, early, late 20s and early 30s, because the fact of the matter is young people cannot afford the rent, yes. cannot afford a home. And that's the reality. And I don't know why we seem to be skirting around the problem. But what's interesting... Joanne, and just play devil's advocate here, because I look, I 100% agree with you. Absolutely, safe and secure housing is a is a fundamental human right. 
But the fact that it's got harder and almost impossible for so many people to buy a house now within our own lifetime, so we've seen that occur well and truly within our mm. lifetimes, does that necessarily mean then that the people who are able to buy houses 20, 30, even 10 years ago when it was relatively affordable, that then all of that social responsibility of where our economy at is at falls onto their shoulders as opposed to the government's? No, I don't think so. I think the government's definitely got a role to play in this. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't hear the discussions with the government about what they're doing to provide homes and shelter for people. Um, I just... People that have managed to buy 20, 10, 20 years ago, good on them, but so much has changed in even just 10 years now and, you know, the government's really not even talking about it. And it's about time. Everyone has to be in it together because it's just such a real problem with the young people of today and older people as well. Oh, but, absolutely. Know, here as well. So yeah, age is no discrimination issue. in this conversation. No, and it's not only about, you know, landlords and... Um, renters, it's, it's a bigger problem and, it, and it's all got to do with everything that we're talking about now. Yeah. It's very, Thank you very distressing. Thank you so much, Joanne, for calling. Natalie's in Northcote. Morning, Natalie. Hi, how are you going? Good. You're a landlord? What's your experience I am a been la- like? Well, I, I didn't increase the rent for a number of years. I only wanted to make enough that it would cover my mortgage and the body corporate rates because I have a flat. Um, when tenants left to go back home overseas when COVID hit, I was left in a position where I didn't have tenants for three months. And I had a little bit of a kitty, which was okay, but they got down to nearly zero. And then I got new tenants, but it was at $350 a week as opposed to $430 a week. And that was okay while the mortgage or the interest rates were low. But I'm now in the position where I can't cover my mortgage with the income I get from my flat. And I'm so, the, Natalie, I'm a, what about the argument then from a previous texter that said, well, you took that risk, your bed, you lie in it? Well, I understand that perspective, but I went without a lot to raise a, the deposit and buy my own flat when I was in my late, in my 20s and early 30s. I was living overseas, but I, forgo, I went without the travelling to multiple European cities so that I could afford that because I'd had the experience as a child of losing a house or my parents lost our house. Mm. And so having that security was really important to me. And I'm now in a position where I have that investment property and all I would like to do with it is to have the rent cover the mortgage and a couple of expenses. Because I'm a mother, I, I'm now at home with my two little children who are under five and I can't afford well my choice now is go back to work and put them in childcare, mm. or and I can't sell my flat now because I don't have an income to afford another loan so Gosh, it's a really tricky when we talk about the stereotype of who a landlord is you can't can you Natalie you, you no. can't throw no. one idea over the image of who a landlord is because you certainly don't fit that stereotype no, not at all. And I would love for these guys to stay in the flat, but I I can't find $250 extra a month. And I'm in the position where the rates aren't being paid, the water's not being paid, the body corporate's not being paid, because I, our income doesn't stretch that far. Mm. So I have to raise, I have to raise um, the monthly or the, the weekly amount, but I know it's going to be to the detriment of these tenants who... Yeah 
I, I only know, I know that they have parents they can go back and live with, but they're also a young couple out on their own for the first time as a couple. Oh, and then comes that social conscious that we're all talking about, like you're thinking about the well-being, and mm. rightly so, of that couple and knowing everything about them. Oh, Natalie, thanks for sharing your story. Yeah, we've had a lot of landlords, Rochelle, haven't we, calling in who are grappling with these great um, uh, decisions to make about what are they willing to sacrifice, how far will they stretch their own um, income and, and their expenses in order to be able to kind of look after the tenants that are in their investment properties. That's right. And... Just the idea of the stereotypes, not only of the landlord, but of the tenant as well and how the, mm. the who's renting and why they're renting is changing, even what they're earning is changing. Jason in Newport sent a message saying, I'm a landlord and a tenant and I'm a better landlord than my landlord for sure. I do repairs, <laughs> I do maintenance, I do all the improvements when asked, unlike my landlord who expects my home every three months and refuses all repairs. Jacob Kane is the Vice President of the Real Estate Institute of Victoria. Jacob... We've heard so many angles and individual stories here today. And not only does it turn out that we can't stereotype the landlord, but we also can't stereotype the tenant, can we? And who people who is renting and why they're renting. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, thanks heaps for having me on the show today. And I've, I've been listening in and it's been a really fascinating conversation. And to your point, yeah, I think I think the notion of of a renter as we sort of identify that that person that individual in australia is is changing um it's your previous callers and, and both of you have referred to the you know the, the rapidly increasing cost of purchasing properties of renting properties um and a, a byproduct of that is this concept of the Australian dream, right, which we've, we've all held, you know, for, for generation after generation, it's, it's kind of been intrinsically tied to property ownership. That's, that's sort of morphing now as property ownership, you know, goes beyond um, achievable for a lot of people. And we're, we're transitioning into a phase where there are more people that are lifelong renters. And there's historically maybe been a bit of a stigma attached to that. Mm. You know, there's been a sort of... Um, of, you know, valorising people that are able to own properties, whether that's their home or their home and an investment property, and almost the stigmatising of people that have rented. But as we transition into this, you know, uh, society where there are vastly more people who are renting for life, and not just because they're incapable of purchasing prop uh, properties, but because they've made that decision to prioritise mobility to prioritize lifestyle traveling th those kind of different um aspects of life um that concept of what a renter looks like uh is is morphing and you you touched on it before that previous text message uh we have you know so many more these days owners and renters at the same time um, people that have maybe purchased an investment property and then, again, pursuing that sort of mobility, whether it's interstate travel, whether that's uh, travel within a city, move from the coast one one summer into the, the suburbs in, in the winter or something like that. So, yeah. 
this idea of perhaps renaming the landlord the real estate provider, which we've touched on this morning as well, this idea that perhaps, you know, there's this sense of provision that you are providing mm. something that really matters to people, um, whether you see it as a, just a, a profit-making exercise for the person living in your, your property, you're providing them with a, a roof over their head. Um, I wonder if even just the language around this industry um, whether if that changes, the perceptions and the response, the sense of responsibility yes. might change too. Yeah, 100%. Look, I, I wasn't privy to the conversations that the Victorian government had when they were formulating these um, the raft of changes that have been introduced over the past few years to, to the legislation that governs um, residential tenancies. But that change in terminology from landlord to rental provider and tenant to renter, I think is definitely part of trying to normalise this system to change those perceptions to, you know, impact on the way that people think about the system and think about the parties on either side of, of the equation. Or yeah. the, you, know, to, 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 you know, we talk about commodification, it, it, it is a transaction in some respects, but I think drawing off some comments from some of your earlier callers too, like the the agencies that are managing properties and doing it really well are able to communicate to both renters and rental providers and the, the notion of this being a symbiotic relationship, right, that one doesn't exist without the other. You know, it, a, a rental provider, landlord historically, right, there's no point in having an investment property if there's not a renter there to actually rent the premises and to, to be able to provide the income from that investment. And similarly, um, the, the renters, if, if, if the rental providers don't purchase those properties, then the renters are forced yeah, into a situation. you can't have one without the other. Yeah. Jacob, exactly. Jacob Kane is with you. He's the Vice President of the Real Estate Institute of Victoria. Cannot keep up with the texts that are coming in. Here's just a couple. Notice nobody owning multiple properties are calling in. They're too busy counting their money. And another, why do owners think that they're entitled to cover their mortgage with the rental income? They make extraordinary capital gains. The system is completely broken if rent is higher than the mortgage repayments. Richard's been waiting patiently in Euroa. Hi, Richard. Yeah, hello. Richard, you're on air. What did you want to say? Well, I've, I've got a number of properties. I've got a heap of them, actually. I've got eight. And uh, I've just been listening to all this uh, conversation. We don't need to change terms. We just need to actually talk about things in the real world. I look after my properties because they're worth a lot of money. So when I do an inspection, I say to the tenant, what needs fixing? Then I say to my agent, fix it. Because I want to maintain my properties because they're worth money to me. It's a huge investment. And it seems to me that we've got people saying, our oh, landlords are all nasty people. We provide a service. We provide housing for people that wouldn't have it. And in my town, if, there were, if I took my five houses out of town and sold them, there would be five houses not available for people who need rental properties. And if they're bought by Airbnb crowds, they still aren't available for the market and they charge exorbitant rents. You know, like they're charging 150 a night. Mm. Multiply that by seven, yeah. people can't afford that. So I'm, I, I try to look after my, my tenants, but the thing I want to say is that where I've got tenants with dogs, my houses are being destroyed. 
The so, idea of pets and rentals is a really interesting one and I'm, I'm glad that you raised that, Richard, because, Jacob, you hear anecdotally, and we've done multiple programs here on the Conversation Hour about the disruptor of short stays and Airbnb and, and short stays accommodation and one of the main reasons why people like that would be landlords in long-term rental choose to go into short stays is because they feel like they have more rights, that they have more rights over the tenant that's in there for that short period of time. They make more money and they can say things like no dogs, no pets, or, you know, you, you have to leave on X amount of date, that they feel like they have some ownership back. Is that a big problem? There's a, there's a couple of things to cover off there. Yeah, I think... Um, when you, you go into the short stay market, you obviously take on masses of other risk. Um, the, the kind of demographic, the type of properties that, that, that succeed in short stay often attract people that are far less concerned about maintaining and taking care of the property than someone that's living there on a permanent basis who um, has their possessions in the property, their furniture, so on and so forth, and, and they live there. They, they have an interest in keeping the place clean and well-maintained as opposed to someone that's in for a weekend, perhaps a party or something like that, a, you know, a concert in town. They're less incentivized really to, to prioritise taking care of, of the furnishings and, and the premise as well. On the issue of pets, look, I, I think you referred to it earlier on um, with regard to the, the, the stories we hear, right, on, again, the, the archetype of the, you know, the slumlord landlord that isn't interested in, um, you know, can, maintaining the property and getting maintenance uh, and repairs undertaken increases the rent. On the other side of the equation, we hear of the, the nightmare tenant that's trashed the property and doesn't pay rent. You hit on it earlier on when you said they are they are the exception, not the rule. The, the system is not perfect by any measure, but for the, for the vast majority of cases, the relationship between the rental provider and the renter is strong. Um, it's facilitated by good agents in between that maintain and help to ensure that, that both sides of the equation are, are satisfied and happy, that they're comfortable in the home, that the rental income is coming in. And, and that is without question the case for you know the vast vast majority the, the thing is the the newsworthy stuff really is those instances where oh my god you know the property's been trashed or oh my god this uh you know landlord's providing a slum so in in the ter in terms of pets since the legislation changed to uh, accommodate um pets for renters there's been no measurable increase in damage to property. Where there is damage in, you know, that's um, come about as a, as a result of pets, the renters are responsible for that to uh, cover the costs of repair or restoration mm. to the condition which the property was in before. And that happens, again, 99 times out of 100. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us. Jacob Kane, Vice President at the Real Estate Institute of Victoria. Rochelle, it's really all come down today to, you know, this sense of do we have an ethical uh, obligation to provide safe and secure shelter when you are a landlord? Is that just part of the deal? Wendy Stone is a Professor of Housing and Social Policy at the Centre for Urban Transitions at Swinburne University. Hi, Wendy. Oh, good morning. We've heard from lots of people this morning who would, I think, consider themselves an ethical landlord. What does that mean and how do we do it? 
Oh, I think um, opening up the question of what is an ethical landlord um, is a really timely and important one. Um, much of the conversation this morning has highlighted just how important the private rental sector is for Australians now. So we are talking about you know, roughly 26% uh, of all households being private rental tenants. Uh, so what, what it really means, uh, I guess, um, really thinking about the people who are investing in in this um, sector as really um, sort of changing the way we think about this. So an ethical position is one in which we recognise and understand the role of investor landlords as housing providers. And the regulations that have been changing um, to, to sort of catch up with this understanding around Australia over the last few years and including in Victoria are, are just kind of catching up with that position. So. Uh, People who invest in uh, private rental dwellings and provide a home really do uh, need to provide decent conditions for living, uh, you know, ideally uh, longer term uh, leasing options, some security of tenure. And it's, we know from all of our research um, in Australia, internationally, that it's really the provision of secure, affordable, yes. safe housing that can actually enable people to get on with their lives. So, But, but what I find interesting, Wendy, is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I feel like this conversation is new in only, say, the last couple of decades when the difference between and the disparity between being able to own a home and not own a home has really come to the forefront. Previously, maybe it wasn't that great. And so now the shift has come into, well, I can't afford to buy a home and you can, so now your social responsibility is greater. I feel like my mum and dad or my nan and pa wouldn't have been having this conversation. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, absolutely. It really has shifted. So we had that deregulation of a lot of financial um, sectors in the in the late 80s. Um, and it's played out in, in the property market really intensively, as we all know. Um, prices have just been going up. A lot of people are kind of um, not able to own um, who would wish to own. And certainly the census uh, data year after year of those five-year marks shows that um, there is a decline in the overall number of people in Australia who can own a home. All of our research um, that we've undertaken about what people really aspire to and want indicates very strongly that home ownership and security is still the number one ideal. It's just that people can't make, can't meet that. But it, in terms of the, the combination there of um, the change in the rental um, investment um, sort of context, the financial context and the numbers of people increasing, we've kind of got this situation where we do need this policy catch-up and we do need to have this conversation about uh, understanding better what is the research telling us about who are landlord investors. Um, you know, what, we know that in Australia we have a very large proportion of investors who are basically um, small-scale holders. So 72% of um, landlord investors in Australia um, uh, you know, just own one property. Uh, yes. So there's sort of people you might be talking right. about. And we heard that stat earlier and it's sort of just looking, I guess just trying to put the human element into all of this, but it is a really emotive conversation. Wendy, thanks for your time and your insights. Wendy Stone, I'm the Professor of Housing and Social Policy at the Centre for Urban Transitions at Swinburne University. Bronwyn O'Shea, we, there's no way we could get through all the calls and texts on this today, but I do want to read this text 
The real problem is the overinflated price of property. As soon as properties became a commodity and no longer shelter, there was a system of the have and the have-nots. If property wasn't so horribly overpriced, the incentive to own them, to fund them for retirement wouldn't be there and everyone might actually be able to afford a basic home. Real estate agencies and past government policy have a lot to answer for. Sometimes I wish I was as eloquent as some of our listeners, Rish. <laughs> I think that on a <laughs> daily basis, Bromwyn O'Shea. Oh, incredible. Bromwyn O'Shea, as always, lovely to have you back. Happy New lovely Year. Lovely to be back. Thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.